Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. What I thought was betrayal of me was actually me realizing that I had been betraying myself all along. I had been betraying my intuition, my inner knowing, all in a way to be validated by being in relationship. That really was a huge turning point for me in really stepping into my power. I actually had written in my journal exactly what was going to happen as far as the betrayal was concerned. So it was like part of me knew this is in the field, this is actually going to happen. But unfortunately, because you're hard headed and you don't listen to your own inner knowing, you're just going to have to learn the hard way. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, your host of At the End of the Tunnel. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to one of my dear friends and mentors from back in my yoga teaching days. I don't know if you knew that about me, but I was a full-time yoga teacher for many years. And Tracy Stanley owned a yoga studio in Los Angeles called Divine Motion. And that ended up being one of the first yoga studios where I taught after my teacher training. And since then, Tracy and I evolved as teachers over the years. And now she's become one of the foremost leaders of yoga nidra and mindfulness. She teaches all around the United States when there's not a pandemic. And she's even shared the stage with Oprah Winfrey and many others. And both Tracy and I were also one of just a handful of black teachers in Los Angeles back in the day. Thankfully, that's changed now. But we're going to talk a little bit about what that was like and how she felt about hiring me as one of her first yoga teachers in her studio. We'll also break down the story of all of the leaps of faith that she had to take in order to become a teacher and a community leader and eventually the author that she's become today. Her book, Radiant Rest, just came out and it's all about yoga nitra, which is a type of yoga that means, and you're going to like this, it means the yoga of sleep. And she's just an all-around inspiring person. She's a wife, she's a stepmom, an entrepreneur, a teacher, a student, a community leader. She teaches teachers, and she's the host of the Radiant Rest podcast. So Tracy has so much life experience and wisdom to share with us about leaving her successful career as a film producer to open the yoga studio and having to listen to her heart about getting out of her earlier relationship and overcoming self-betrayal and finding her passion and her purpose. I just can't wait for you to experience this conversation. So without further ado, here is the Radiant Rest author, my dear friend, Miss Tracy Stanley. Tracy, thank you so much for coming on to At the End of the Tunnel. As you 
may be familiar with, <laughs> I like to start these conversations off talking about your childhood. The kickoff question is, when you think about your childhood, did you have a favorite toy or activity? Thinking back to childhood, my favorite activity was reading. What kind of books were you reading? You know, it's funny when I think back to it, because my dad in particular was very strict. He was a, mm-hmm. <laughs> a very strict disciplinarian. So I wasn't really allowed to go out and play with other kids. And so what I remember most is reading through the entire encyclopedia, A through wow. Z. So that's what I did. What was the intention of reading the encyclopedia versus Curious George or any of these other kind of children's books? You know, I definitely had Curious George and I definitely had other kids' books, but I think I just became fascinated by things that I didn't know and gathering information somehow. And I also feel like I had this set of encyclopedias that was in my bedroom And it felt like I needed to read the whole thing. So that's what I remember most. If you were to ask me, what did I read? Like give you the names of books. I remember the encyclopedias. Now, I don't know how old you are, but you just dated yourself with encyclopedias because there are no kids right now with encyclopedias. Is that really (laughs) true? Because if that's true, that's really sad. (laughs) (laughs) We have Google, right? So they don't need the encyclopedia. I had encyclopedias growing up. So... You know, when I was growing up, I definitely was not reading encyclopedias A to Z, but it was the sort of television era. And so we spent, mm-hmm. in my family, we spent tons of time just sitting in front of the television. Was that your experience as well? Or were you opting for the encyclopedia over the television? No, I actually wasn't allowed to watch television. So there were there were two, and now I'm really going to date myself with one of these shows. <laughs> There was Sesame Street, which is still mm-hmm. on, that I was allowed to watch. And there was Zoom. Do you remember Zoom? No. Okay. Well, there, there it might have been like an East Coast thing. But mm-hmm. there was this show called Zoom. And it was kind of like a Sesame Street that had like dancing and music. And those were the only two shows that I was allowed to watch. So my parents were very conscientious about what was on television at that time and specifically how Black people were being portrayed on television. So that's why I wasn't allowed to watch TV. And the next best thing was was reading. And I learned to read at a really young age. So reading has always been a passion. So talk a little bit about your childhood. We know you grew up in Long Island. Were your parents together? Did you have siblings? How was the vibe in your house overall? So yes, my parents were together. I lived in a neighborhood in an area called Huntington. And like I said, my parents, my dad specifically was very strict. So my family life was really in the home. The only time where we were kind of like out of the home was going on vacations or going to church because my grandmother was a reverend. And so on Saturdays and Sundays, my mom would take my brother and I to church. I have a younger brother. He's four years younger than me. Looking back at it, you know, of course you're a child, so you don't 
realize the difference between your childhood, your life and someone else's life that's happening was very, very strict. You know, there were certain rooms in the house that we were not allowed to go into. You know, there were certain things that we were not allowed to touch. We had a very strict kind of wake up time and bedtime. You know, my dad was former military, former Air Force. So, you know, he didn't believe in laying around in bed. It's like, you know, once the sun was up, you needed to get up. We all had chores. So my chores, once I got older, were mowing the lawn, washing the dishes, and weeding the front yard. So nobody in the house, my brother or I, got away without doing any work. There was no such thing as an allowance. There was no such thing as using the phone. So it was very, very strict. My dad had, in talking to him about it later in life, he really felt like he wanted to protect us. And so he put all these things in place to try to protect us. And I would also say control us. (laughs) So life was very controlled and very strict and very disciplined. And I didn't really realize how disciplined it was until I started to talk to other friends that were allowed to basically just go and do whatever they wanted to do. And I was like, what do you mean you get to do that? (laughs) Did your dad impart any lessons that stand out to you now from when you were a kid? What were were a couple of the, the lessons that he would always sort of reiterate? Well, the first one is always be on time. Don't be late. (laughs) Why would he tell you to be on time? What was the importance of that? I think that there was an expectation around stereotypes, around Mm -hmm. how Black people show up. Colored people time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you show up in excellence in everything that you do. And so that, that was his main message. His other message was really that his thriving and our thriving was a form of resistance. And that there was going to be people in the world who did not appreciate or want you to thrive and that you needed to persevere no matter what. Was his family from the South? His family was from Bermuda. So he grew up mostly in Bermuda. His dad died when he was very young. And his dad, there's a mystery around where exactly he was from. You know, we've heard all kinds of stories that he was born on a reservation, that he was from Ohio, and through Ancestry DNA, now I've like started to parse out what the truth was. But the people who raised my dad, for the most part, were from Bermuda. The family homestead is in Bermuda. So, you know, he really imparted these lessons that still stay with me. And how were you thinking about success in your younger years around that thriving as a form of resistance sort of atmosphere? When I was young, I saw myself becoming a lawyer. That was Mm -hmm. the, the thing that I wanted to do was to be a lawyer. It really started with my fascination around the news. So some of the heroes that I had very early on, because there was a moment in time where I wanted to be a journalist But then when I would look at who was on the news as the news anchors, I never saw anyone that looked anything like me until one day I discovered Melba Tolliver. 
who was a news anchor. I can't remember what station it was. And then just for whatever reason, I was very interested in some of the crimes that were happening. And so that's kind of took a trajectory into, oh, I think I would love to become a prosecutor at some point. And it sounds like you guys were pretty conscious of race, which in my experience was the same thing. That's all we really talked about in our house growing up was black people, white people. I mean, I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. So, you know, Mm. there's a lot of stuff that happened down there with the civil rights movement and, and all of that. Was that your experience as well? Not exactly. So the neighborhood that I grew up in was largely Jewish and Italian. Mm-hmm. So we we were one of two Black families that lived on this block. And most of the people, with the exception of maybe one family, were not very happy when we moved into to the neighborhood. What my dad really wanted us to understand was that we were very privileged and that there were all these other things happening at the same time. And of course, then we were going to my grandmother's church on the weekends and staying at my grandma's house, which was in a neighborhood called Windanch, which was a Black neighborhood. So we always had both and, right? One of the first documentaries my dad ever introduced me to, he took me to the movie theater to see Eyes on the Prize. He was into all kinds of literature and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. So he always made sure that we knew what was going on, even though it didn't seem like it could be affecting us as much as it might have been affecting you growing up in someplace like Alabama. Do you remember being profiled at all as a kid? Like you said, your neighbors didn't want you guys there. Was that your direct experience? Anything happened or it's just what he told you? No, I mean, there was our literal next door neighbor was taunting us and me in particular because we walked to school. So I had to deal with the, even though it, it was not overtly racist, you know, there were no slurs being thrown about. It was clear and they were Puerto Rican. So it was clear that that there was some sort of issue. What we learned later also was that the the woman who lived next door to us had mental issues. The profiling would have been I'm playing in the front of my house and there's somebody driving down the street that doesn't even live in on the block that like slows down to like say, "Well, what are you what are you doing there? What are you doing there?" Or you're driving in a car that somebody doesn't think you deserve to drive in. Mm-hmm. How did you get that car? What do you, you know? So it was very subtle. There was never anything that was very overt, but it mm-hmm. was enough that even as a child, I could pick up this is what we would be calling profiling now. your mental state as a kid? Sounds pretty like you had a pretty happy childhood. I got spanked a lot because I didn't like what we call abuse now, (laughs) but I got spanked a lot because I really had a mind of my own and I wanted to question why things were the way they were or why rules were set the way they were set. 
And my dad did not appreciate critical thinking. He really wanted you to do what he told you to do. And that, and that should be enough. <laughs> what was the most defiant thing you, you, you think you did back then that just really pissed your dad off? Oh, okay. Well, the most defiant thing, because I was pretty much in line, he, you know, his idea of being doing what he said he wanted you to do was pretty over the top. And so one of the things was that he was like, no, you can't use the phone. So this is me being like 15 when at the time where everybody is on the phone and talking and doing their things, he's like, no, you're not allowed to use the phone. And the reason why I wasn't allowed to use the phone was because he wanted to know who I would be talking to and what I would be saying. And so he put a lock on the phone, basically. He put like a, cause you know, rotary dial phone, right? So he put, they had these little locks that you could like slide into the circle and then it would lock. And then I figured out that, oh, if I took a paperclip, I might be able to pick this lock off and use the phone. So about a week later, he figured out that I was using the phone and that, that was not, that didn't end well. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like you were looking forward to moving on after high school and establishing your own independence after growing up with such rigid rules around the house? Yeah, I mean, it was really twofold because I really loved my dad more than Mm. anybody, you know? So Stockholm syndrome. (laughs) Despite the fact that he was a disciplinarian, we had so much in common. I learned so much from him. He had an incredible sense of humor He was an incredible entrepreneur who thought completely out of the box and his thinking out of the box was always something that other people would say, oh no, you can't do that. And he would always say, well, I, if I can visualize it, then I know I can do it. So that's another lesson that I would say. What's Um, an example of that? What did he do that was so radical? So back in the day, he was working as an insurance agent for Prudential Insurance Company. Mm-hmm. And he realized that there was, and this is back in the day when the insurance agent would knock on the door. And so he just realized that there was a huge section of Long Island that was not being serviced by mostly the white insurance agents because they were not going to go door to door in Black neighborhoods. So he essentially mapped out these all of these neighborhoods on Long Island and basically became one of the top selling insurance agents. And then once he did that, he thought, well, I can open my own agency. And the people that he worked with were like, there's no way you can do that. Nobody has ever left here and started their own agency. And he's like, I know that I can do that. And I know that I can service many communities because there were a lot of people coming from the Philippines. There were a lot of people coming from Russia. There were people coming from all over that were moving to Long Island. And basically what he did was he taught himself how to say a few different phrases in each one of those languages from the immigrant communities that were coming into Long Island. And he opened his insurance agency and he made everybody feel completely welcome there. Hmm. And so it was something that nobody was thinking about doing. Did he talk about that 
back at the time or you learned that later when you became an adult? No, no, no. He talked about it at the time. He told me exactly what he was going to do. So he would come home from work and kind of sit you down at dinner and give you the play-by-play of what was going on and how he was innovating? He basically came home one day and said, I'm starting my own agency. I'm leaving Prudential on this date. I have located the office building and I'm going to purchase this office building and I'm going to open up the agency in this building. And so I became like his little helper, you know, going into the office and cleaning out the office and he made had flyers made. And so I was the one who went around the whole neighborhood and started putting flyers on the cars. So I was very integral as a very young teenager. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it was probably like 12 or 13, just watching him building his empire mm-hmm. and watching him build literally from nothing other than an idea and a knowing that he had the ability to do it. Mm. Not listening to what anybody else said. I love that. So obviously you inherited some of that at that age. You thought started thinking out of the box as well. I definitely inherited that, but I also, I think more than anything, it was that I could do anything that I put my mind to. So talk about your decision to go to Stony Brook. Because I mean, it's not and this is, it's not exactly an HBCU, and it sounds like your dad was very focused on black excellence and this kind of thing. Why Stony Brook out of all the other colleges that's a, in, that's in the world? That's such a great question. Trust me, I had my <laughs> list of places. I was like, I want to go here, 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 and he was like, "You're not going away to a college." Because first of all, I I skipped a grade, so I graduated earlier than most. Of the, I was a year younger. He said, no, you're not going away to school. You need to pick a school that you can either drive to or take the train to. So that's how Stony Brook was decided. What was it? He needed, he needed the help at work? What was it just no, he, what, he didn't want to let us out of his sight. So this wow. whole thing that like not being able to go out, not going to parties, not going to friends, blah, 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 the whole thing, it extended even to going away to school. That was not even on the table as an option to go away to school. You mentioned in other interviews that you were an introvert. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I may be speculating here, but I'm kind of seeing a pattern of <laughs> you were being conditioned not to be big and not to go off on your own and do these things. It's, it's kind of like you're being conditioned to play small a bit. 100%. There's no question about that. There was a moment that I can't imagine he would be very happy with when you were scouted by oh, no. a modeling that agent was not, that was at not Stony Brook. It was not a cute moment. So, so you meet um, your, you get to you get to your crossroads moment where you have to like make a decision. Talk talk about that. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water. TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, 
You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Well, at that point, there were a couple of things that happened. One, this wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to pay for you to go to school because everything that he wanted us to understand was that you have to work for what you want. There's no free ride happening, no matter what the situation is. So he wanted me to be working while I was in school. So I had a, I had a job and the job that I had it was at this place called the party experience. It started out with me like blowing up balloons. <laughs> and then eventually I became the manager of the store. And so for my age at that time, I was making what we would say would be, you know, halfway decent money. And I started to realize like, oh, I can probably afford to get my own place, you know, with a girlfriend. So I had a, that in the back of my mind. And at the same time, part of me started rebelling against the feeling of being invisible. The, the idea of being invisible, being an introvert, being bullied while I was in school, because that was a very big part of my childhood was really being bullied very badly, that it was right on the precipice of me deciding that I'm going to I need to move out. And so when I got scouted as a model and then kind of followed up on that and then wound up moving to New York City, that was really the thing that was like, oh, I've worked my entire life to move away from the city. And now you're going to go and live in the city. You're never going to make it. I remember him saying, you're never going to make it don't call me and ask me for a dollar. <laughs> and I was like, don't worry. I'm never going to call you and ask you for a single dollar. <laughs> and I never did my entire life. Talk about the moment you got scouted though. Where were you and what, how did it go down? Well, I was on the train. I don't remember where I was coming from, but I was on Long Island Railroad. And this woman came up to me and she said, I'm Whitney Houston's makeup artist. <laughs> and I think you should you should go to elite model agency. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've grown up my entire life essentially feeling ugly, definitely not feeling cute. And so that sounds crazy. And she said, no, no, no. I think what we should do is we should meet up and I should take your picture and do your makeup. And then I'll take the pictures to the modeling agency. And so that was the, the beginning. 
nothing really came of that. And then I wound up going into the city with a boyfriend who was going into an agency to do like a go see for a commercial. And the head of the agency came out because I was sitting outside and he said, you need to come upstairs. I want to take pictures of you. And that was David Bossman. And so that was my, the official like scouting moment that actually led to me working. And then after that, I was in Paris. What year was this? I want to say maybe 88. David Bossman was like the hottest thing in New York at that time. That's pretty yeah, exciting. I didn't know that. I literally didn't know that. I was just like, okay, there's this guy who wants me to go up to the roof and take some pictures. I had no idea. I kind of figured it out when he picked up the phone and I was sent to Elle magazine to meet with the editor. Mm-hmm. But still, I was so sheltered that I did not know. I didn't know any really what was going were you- on. Were you confident at the time in, no, in yourself? No, I was completely unconfident, which is why I was not successful um, <laughs> at any of these go-sees that he was sending me to because I was completely introverted. And they could see that I was mm-hmm. so different than a lot of those girls who were coming in that were worldly and all the things. And so the editor at L had basically told David Bosman, she needs to go to Paris. Mm. And I think that they thought like Paris was the place that you would mature. So if your dad didn't like the fact that you're getting into modeling, he really didn't like the fact that you were about to go to Paris. Oh no, no. Well, he didn't like the fact that I moved to New York. And then when I was going to Paris, I think on the one hand, he was like, Hmm, you getting to travel, which is something that he loved to do. So mm-hmm. that was that was one thing. But I think that he was very he would he did not like the idea that I was modeling. It wasn't until I had a layout in Essence magazine that he started to he was like, "Oh, a little bit more." And then I was sending him postcards from every place where I was and clearly I was making my own way in the world. And luckily because of the discipline of how I grew up, I never tried drugs. I wasn't interested in drinking because I was able to kind of be an observer to other friends who went through those things that I kind of was able to say, okay, that's not something that I want to do. It was interesting. Also being an introvert, I was always observing what was, mm-hmm. what was going on around me as opposed to trying to jump into what was happening. And then back then, the South African modeling market was really starting to emerge. Yeah. So I didn't get to the South African market until much later because I had been approached to go to South Africa. And I remember speaking to the (laughs) the booker and saying, well, what about apartheid? (laughs) Like, I'm not going to South Africa during apartheid. And she said, oh, don't worry. We'll stamp your passport, honored white. And I was like, no, you won't. (laughs) That is never going to happen. And I am not going. So it wasn't until many years later when Nelson Mandela was elected president that I got a call from that same booker. And I just happened to be watching the celebrations on television when she called. And I thought I would be a fool to not let somebody pay me to go to South Africa at this time in history and experience Mm -hmm. 
what's happening right now. And so that's how I wound up going to South Africa. And little did you know, you were really going to South Africa so you could have this awakening on your balcony. <laughs> talk, I can tell you listening moment. to some other podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, it's true. I, I didn't know that that was going to happen. And it was such a profound moment that it literally changed the course of my life. The moment was I was sitting on my balcony. I was living in this part of Cape Town called Tambor's Kloof. And where my balcony was facing Table Mountain, which is beautiful. If you haven't ever seen Table Mountain, it, it many times it's covered with what they call a tablecloth of fog. And it was very, very early in the morning, just before the sun was rising. And for whatever reason, this moment of peace and stillness just emerged out of nowhere. And it was such a stillness that it felt like all of these answers to questions that I had just descended down into me. And I had this knowing. I don't know how long it lasted. It probably was not very long, but it seemed like forever. It it was this moment where time and space seemed to dissolve. And when it was finished, you know, I was up. I think I was writing And then my roommates eventually got up and I was telling them what happened. They were looking at me like I was insane. What (laughs) We don't know what you're talking about. And then eventually there was one person in the community that I spoke to and he said, oh, I know exactly what happened to you. And let me take you to this bookstore. And so we went to the bookstore and he piled up a bunch of books and he said, these are the books that you need to read. And I started reading them. And that was the beginning of shifting my perspective about life, about the nature of reality, about synchronicity. They're just completely like, (laughs) it was like someone coming in and scrubbing your whole mind (laughs) Mm. and just pouring in light. Prior to that moment on the balcony, did you have any sort of spiritual foundation? Had you even thought about spirituality or yoga or any of that stuff? Well, I would say my grandmother set the tone for Mm -hmm. the idea that there's, there's something greater. And the way in which she did that was as a granddaughter of the reverend, getting saved is something that is kind of on the menu. (laughs) And so I remember at one point, everything was happening. People were getting saved. And I, as the introvert, was kind of sitting back watching what was happening. And at one point, she looked at me and she laid hands on me and I fell out. And afterwards, I remember thinking, that is something very specific. Like that energy, that's not just, you know, because I was watching everybody not knowing, are they performing? What's happening? And then when it happened to me, I was like, oh, wait, this is, there's something, there's an energy that exists that she was able to transfer to mm. me. So this idea of energy, which I would now say, cannot, we could also say is, was almost like a Shaktipat mm. she was doing, was one thing. I had a girlfriend, her name is Nabouche, and she was the first person to show me sun salutations. 
And she said, oh, I've been, we were in New York City. She's like, I've been doing this thing called yoga. And let me show you these sun salutations. So we did the sun salutations and she was going to David Life back in the day when he had his Jiva Mukti. It was actually before Jiva Mukti. It was Mm -hmm. like pre-Jiva Mukti. It was expensive. So there was no way, like, at least for me, I was like, I can't afford to go pay this however much it was at the time, a couple of times a week. So I never really wound up going. I did find, so two things that happened during childhood was that my mother was studying for her master's degree. And there used to be these like books by the pound where you would just like pay books by the pound and you'd bring the books home. So she would do books by the pound, she'd bring them home. And one of the books that she brought was a book on astral projection. Mm. So I picked up that book and I thought, oh, this is a good way to get out of the house. (laughs) So I'm not allowed to leave. (laughs) And I started reading and doing some of the practices of the astral projection book. And then one other thing that happened was one of the other books that we had was Chant and Be Happy that my dad had because he was a big fan of the Beatles also. In that book is the Hare Krishna mantra. And so I remember reading the Hare Krishna, like trying to read the Hare Krishna mantra, and then also hearing other music like My Sweet Lord, where it was in there as well. And also I probably had collected over the years, many, many versions of the Bhagavad Gita. Because every time we went to the airport, for whatever reason, the Hare Krishnas would beeline for me specifically and my whole family. I would be the one. And I think it was probably because everybody else was kind of like eyes ahead, keep going. And I would be looking with curiosity and they would give me the book. So it was in the field. What were some of the books that you remember being introduced to at that time that really shaped your the beginnings of your path? Well, one of the first ones was uh, he gave me The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. That was mind-blowing. I remember reading the poem about your children are not really your children. And how I grew up, that kind of was an interesting reframe. There were some books, well, Way of the Peaceful Warrior was the biggest, biggest one that had the biggest impact. Jonathan Livingston Siegel, Illusions by Richard Bach. So those were the ones that, and then I also had a book on the chakras by Harish Johari. And that was the first time that I ever meditated self-guided. So, you know, I read the book and there was a practice, I believe in the book where you're going to like see certain colors at the chakras. I did that practice and it was just an experience. So what I realized after reading and having that experience with the chakra meditation was that I needed to do this more. I needed to learn more about it. At that time, there weren't like yoga studios and meditation studios in Johannesburg, which is where I was at the time. It wasn't until I got back to LA that I started to explore meditation. Obviously, you were on the cusp of graduating yourself from modeling. Was that a tough decision to make? And then also, 
what was going on behind the scenes. I don't, I'm not sure if you were in a relationship and that's why you moved to LA or what the deal was. So just talk a little bit about that transition. I got to South Africa from LA. So okay. I was in LA, went to South Africa. And while I was in South Africa, after having that experience of reading all of those books and starting to shift my mindset, starting to shift the way that I was eating, just becoming really clear also with boundaries about what I was going to do and what I was not going to do. You know, at that time, there were no girls really working with natural hair in South Mm. Africa, if you can believe that or not. Mm. Um, And so at the time my hair was twisted and it was natural. I'd been wearing my hair natural for a long time. And I just said, you know what, I'm not going to put a wig on and I'm not, if you want me, you need to, this is how it is that you're going to have to hire me the way, the way I am. So just starting to put down and become more empowered in my own voice in a way. And then what happened was that I was traveling from Cape town to Johannesburg and I had everything that I owned with me, including all my tear sheets, all my Z cards, all the blah, blah, blah. My friend Linda picked me up and we decided to go get a tea prior to heading over to her apartment and somebody broke in to the car. So we were walking back from the tea place and I see one of my shoes and some broken glass on the ground. And I was like, oof, this isn't good. Somebody broke into the car and everything was gone. The only thing that was in the car still was a book that I was reading that was Long Walk to Freedom Mm -hmm. that had my passport and my ticket home inside. And so I stood there and I was like, oh, this is kind of like way the peaceful warrior when the gas station is, is burning down and I'm done with modeling. I'm taking this as a sign that I'm not supposed to be doing this anymore and that I need to move on. So I called my booker and I told her this is what happened and I'm leaving in two days. I booked a flight. I'm leaving in two days. And she, they were just like beside themselves. Like, what do you mean? Da, da, da. It was a whole big drama. And I said, no, I'm leaving. And so that was the end of the modeling career. That's how wow. it ended was with my stuff getting stolen. And, and they tried everything. Oh my God, you have all these tear sheets. You're at the top, you're working every day, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, there's something more. Now, had I not had that experience on the balcony, had I not had this beautiful person, Andoni Anastase, give me all of these books and say, here, this is what is happening to you or what happened to you, I probably would have been completely devastated because my identity would have been so connected to all of those things that were lost, my clothes, my tarot sheets, my this, my that, that it just would have been completely debilitating. Mm. And I could very well see how easy it could have been for the agency to keep me there for another year trying to make up for all of those things that I thought I lost, which in reality, what I realized in that moment was that I actually gained something. Well, it sounds like you had either consciously or subconsciously redefined success for yourself. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like more so I actually defined who I was 
you know, because up until then I was kind of using modeling as a way to travel around the world, which was something that I love to do when we, you know, families would go on vacation, whatever else, but also to be able to just explore. So all of those years of reading the encyclopedias and seeing all these pictures of all these different places, I was basically like living that out, not because I wanted to be a model, but really because I wanted to explore. And so I was in a career that I really didn't want to be in. It didn't suit me to be as an introvert of everything that you were required to do in order to actually be successful as a model was completely antithetic to who I was as a person. And so, you know, while I was in South Africa, the embargoes had ended, but they were still basically in effect because you couldn't get things that you might want to get like film. So I had actually found this flea market that was selling all of these 16 millimeter and eight millimeter cameras, basically for nothing. They were brand new because they couldn't get the film, but I could get the film sent to me from friends. So I had started this thing of taking pictures and filming all these different locations that I was going to and thinking about ideas around making a documentary movie. And so one of the things that was in my mind was, oh, when I go back to LA, I want to find out like, how do you get a movie financed? Could I come back to South Africa and make this movie that had this thought about making a movie about the street kids? Because there were a lot of kids that were addicted to drugs that were very young. Mm -hmm. And even though there were a lot of liberal South Africans at that time, there was also this thing that was happening where these kids were not, no one was doing anything about these children. So I had this idea of like, this would be an interesting documentary to make. So I left. And when I left, my thought was, I want to learn how to finance a movie. I want to kind of go off road for a second because I, (laughs) you mentioned your friend, Linda. And I heard you tell a story about the water bottle. I would love for you to share that story just mm. to give an, give give us an understanding of the culture of South Africa, aside from people breaking into cars, but there's, an, there's another side to that. Oh, 100%. So yeah, the water bottle story. So Linda Zappa, she's a beautiful Cosa model who lived in Cape Town at the time. Now she lives in Florida. She is from this small village called Umtata, which is the same village that Nelson Mandela was born in. Mm -hmm. And so every year there was this beauty pageant that was happening. And she invited me to be one of the judges at the beauty pageant. And of course I was like, yes, we're going to bring, I'm bringing all my Mac makeup and we're going to make, we're going to make up the girls and we're going to do this whole thing. And it was a really hot sweltering day. I was flying from Cape town And I get onto this plane, which is this tiny little plane, like a prop plane. It's sweltering. There's literally no air conditioning. Okay. (laughs) It's like really bad. (laughs) And so I get on the plane and I have my bottle of water. The cap was closed and I have my bottle of water in my right hand. I have my purse on my other shoulder and I'm looking to see where my seat is. And this older man, older black African man takes the bottle takes the water off, takes it out of my hand, 
takes the swig, puts the cap back on and hands it to me. And I was like, what? I cannot believe that this person just took this (laughs) bottle out of my hand and started drinking it and then gave it back to me. And then I was like, wait a second, because the next person then took the bottle and took a swig. And I said, oh, if I have something, everybody on this plane has something. This is the difference between this idea of not only that it, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, right? That's famous saying that we always hear. It's like the health of the village is dependent on everybody in the village. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you have one thing, everybody has it. That was a game changer. Did you have aspirations to, at that time when you were transitioning to Los Angeles, to be married or to have kids or any of the kind of sort of conventional stuff that young women think about? Or were you thinking, I'm going to become a Hollywood mogul one day and direct documentaries and whatnot? Ever since I was about 12 or 13, I knew that I was not going to have children. That was never an aspiration that I had. What I did feel is that I would have children in my life, whether that was, and mostly I thought that I was going to adopt children. And I think that that was because of the example of my grandmother, that she brought in some kids that were from the foster system and she adopted them and then learned that they had other brothers and sisters and cousins. And then she went and adopted those kids as well. So she basically had six kids that were in her home that were not her biological children that she raised. So that was an example of something where I had been thinking that the world was overpopulated, that, you know, I would rather adopt kids, that I didn't need to have my own children. And plus, I think as a young child going through encyclopedias and being a voracious reader and seeing pictures of childbirth, I think that that also had an effect on me. I never put my worth in this idea of something conventional. I definitely think I thought that I would be in a relationship, I would be married, but I don't know. It wasn't like this fairy tale kind of visual. I definitely saw things being a little bit different for me. And was your entree into into production, film production, was it pretty seamless, easy, or did you have to kind of work some magic to get that? No, it was very synchronistic. And I feel like the, the energy that was carried forth from reading Way of the Peaceful Warrior kind of carried through. Because when I got back to LA, I got a call from a friend of mine who told me he was starting a production company. And asked me if I wanted to come and intern. I have no idea why he called me or asked me about this, but basically that's what happened. And I went and I interned at his company for like a year. And his brother had a company that was running simultaneously. And I wound up eventually going to work for the brother. And we grew that company from four people to like 40 people and first look deals with Warner brothers and all kinds of things happened during that time. It sounds like you had a pretty lucrative situation in South Africa. Did you have money saved up or how how were you funding your life in this intern 
Mm, That's a great question that no one has ever asked. (laughs) So (laughs) the situation (laughs) in South Africa, first of all, was lucrative while you were in South Africa. Right. (laughs) Okay. Because the the RAND at that time, I think, was like seven to one. So it was like Mm -hmm. working every day, blah, blah, blah. When you translate that money, when you actually get back, it's actually not that much money. It's really more about you're going there for the tear sheets. You're going there to prove to the editors in America that you're actually, quote unquote, worthy of an eight page editorial in such and such a magazine. Because look, South African Cosmopolitan did this eight page spread, whatever it is. So what happened when I got back, because I had an agency in L.A., is I basically said to them, and this, you know, is part of like the speaking up for myself. I basically said, I'm not going on any more go Here's my book. It's direct booking only. So don't call me with a go It's only direct booking done. And I got lucky and I'm sure they thought, who does she think she is? But I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to go on go anymore. I didn't want, you know, I felt like if there's something happening where I can walk in and get the job because someone knows me, then great. But the process of putting yourself constantly in front of someone to judge you, you know, I mean, I literally had someone tell me, oh, your lips are too big. When you take pictures, you need to suck your lips in. You're too muscular. Are you working out? You're too, you're getting too much, you know, what all these things. So it's all, it's like literally a litany of judgments coming all the time. Mm -hmm. And I got lucky where I did somehow, I don't even know how this happened again, but I got a commercial campaign for Nestle that this director, Peter Kerr, was directing. And so that was a direct booking. I went in and I got met with the director. And then all of a sudden there were like these couple of commercials. And so those couple of commercials kept me in a position where I was able to live. Cause I had this little apartment with that was like $350 a month <laughs> and I could intern and still live off of what I was making from the commercials. So meanwhile, you're now introduced to the Bodhi tree bookstore. Right? You do your homework. <laughs> I, I'm very impressed. <laughs> Yes, the Bodhi tree, the Bodhi tree, yes. And there's a whole scene associated with that. So when did you start going to Yoga West? That's a good question. So I discovered Yoga West probably around 96 Mm -hmm. because I started doing yoga like at a yoga studio around 95, which is the same time that I started working in the film business. And the teacher that I was studying with, he was a Kundalini teacher. He at some point, Yogi Bhajan was coming to LA and he said, okay, I want to bring the whole class to meet my teacher. And so we did this kind of pilgrimage to Yoga West. And I th- I feel like it was 96 or 97, somewhere around there. And that was my introduction to, to Yoga West. And then I started going to Yoga West after work. I actually, there was a an agent at William Morris. His name was Eric. So one day, I don't even know how it happened that we started talking and he's like, oh yeah, I go to Yoga West too. So we started like 
go, you know, secretly we're like in, you know, the film business, we're going to yoga West and doing yoga after like trying to get out of work early so we can go to go do, do yoga. That was, I feel like the first time where I started to hear a little bit about yogic philosophy, because I was then introduced to Guru Singh and Guru Singh was always reading from the, the book of the golden temple. It was just a really interesting place to be where you're hearing these teachings, you're doing these practices, you're having tea afterwards, meeting people who are like-minded. And it was one of those classes that where Yogi Bhajan was actually in LA where I was getting into my car and I was in a relationship at that time. And as I was getting into my car, there was this voice that said, if you stay and if you keep practicing yoga, you're not going to be able to stay with your partner. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to practice yoga anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so that no, Tracy, that's the wrong, that's the wrong takeaway. <laughs> it was the wrong takeaway. But back to the question that you just asked about, like wanting to be married and wanting to have kids, mm -hmm. it's like, I definitely wanted to be in a relationship. And the, where I was at that time was that being in a relationship validated me more than mm. following my own truth, which is where more yoga was leading me closer to the truth of who I really was. And the relationship was keeping me stuck. Now, let me guess, you were dating your father. No, actually, it was the opposite. It was the exact opposite. <laughs> and, and I'm still friends with the, the man that I was dating at the time. But he, he was a free spirit. He was a comedian. He was just, there was no discipline. It was really about life is, it is a way to be joyful. It's a way, a place to celebrate. His thing was making other people happy but he also wasn't willing to grow. He was very happy being exactly how he was without wanting or having a desire. Like there wasn't an inner desire that had risen to the surface yet of wanting to grow. And so that actually is where um, that exactly what I heard was just basically you're with someone who isn't willing to grow. You're seeking that's all you're doing right now is seeking to grow. And you can't be with someone who's not willing to grow. Eventually, it's not going to work. So what happened? Did you go back to yoga? About five months later, I looked in the mirror at myself, like how I was feeling physically, how I was looking physically, how everything. And I thought the magic, the sparkle <laughs> is gone. I'm going back to yoga. And when I went back to yoga, it wasn't long after that, that we split up. I would also imagine that prior to that point, you were a film producer who was doing yoga. And then that decision made you transition into a yogi who was practicing film production. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. I feel like, you know, once I was introduced to 
the yoga sutras, which I found at the Bodhi tree. And I read, took with me on a yoga retreat and read sutra 136 that talks about this light inside of us. That's beyond all sorrow and being able to read about the eight limbs, which previously to that had not been introduced. Right. Because before that it was kind of like Kundalini yoga. I was listening to the teachings of the golden temple, but I wasn't really reading anything. So this was the first time that I was reading this this text that was like this systematic map to samadhi. And then I was also realizing that wait a second there's all these other things that about yoga that are that talk about really the lifestyle and how you're supposed to live and your attitudes and your restraints that I need to incorporate. And so I started to incorporate that into life and into work as much as I could. Now you've had an epiphany in the balcony in South Africa. You had an epiphany getting in your car. So now you have two points of references for where your life should go. There's actually three because the third one is getting my stuff stolen. (laughs) Oh, and realizing you have to leave. South Africa. So that's three. Did you feel like that was all coming from the same place? Like, had you started identifying, okay, that's my heart or that's my intuition or that's the universe or what were you calling it at that time? I was calling it more like the universe, this, you know, synchronicity. I wasn't, I didn't have the nuanced understanding of like pinpointing exactly where that all was coming from. Not at all. Right, but it, there were there was a tangible feeling associated with one one hundred percent. I knew that it had to do with me being still, especially hearing when I was getting into my car. That to me felt like it was directly connected to practice. Right. And so you had another one, not long after that, or I think it's not long after that, which told you to open up a yoga studio. <laughs> Yes, it's true. You weren't even a yoga teacher. No, I wasn't a yoga teacher at all. I was a film producer. <laughs> and, and, and you're I, black. <laughs> yeah, black and, people and don't I'm open up yoga studios and, and you're a woman. I, and I'm a woman. So it, already I was black and a woman as a film producer. And at that time, I think it was really, I know there, there are other people who are producing m- movies that were black and women, but Tracy Edmonds was like, you know, one of the only people that I was meeting with that I looked like me and and Deborah Chase Martin. So what happened with that is that it, I was having a massage with my friend, Melanie, who we used to call the crystal healer. Mm-hmm. We'd go into her space and she had like all these crystals, like more crystals than I've ever seen anywhere. And she was <laughs> doing what I now know is like Thai yoga massage and mixed with like somatic healing. It was just very interesting what she was doing. And at some point in the massage, I'll never forget it. She had me over her back. Like I was in a heart opener and I was over her back. And I just had this knowing just very similar to the balcony moment of like all the questions being answered you have to open a yoga studio. And I thought, that is insane. Like I'm in the middle of, you know, this career 
And so then the intellect starts to come in and the intellect comes in and basically says, well, in like five years, you can, you should open a yoga studio. Okay, great. So at the time I had been renting this apartment and it was a space that was, again, this is synchronistic because this space was on King. It was on uh, Beverly Boulevard next door to Kings Road Cafe. It had been abandoned for 10 years. Nobody had been there. It was a commercial space on the street that still had an apartment that had not been licensed as a commercial space yet. So it was still residential. A friend of mine was purchasing this building and I heard that they were, and I said, oh, there's an apartment in this place. I want to go see it. So I went, saw it. I basically said, fine, I'm going to renovate this thing, make it an apartment, and I'm going to rent the whole place, even the storefront. And I started renting out like the downstairs to the casting directors and the upstairs was the production office. And in the back, that's where I was living. So it was perfect. And so after hearing this and thinking about it, I was like, oh, this downstairs place could be a yoga studio. And this upstairs place could be like a Reiki studio or something. So it was just a thought. And I told one person, I told literally one person, oh, I think I'm going to open a yoga studio one day. To make a long story short, less than a year after that, I opened the studio with a partner, with a new boyfriend. And we opened the yoga studio. He was actually a martial arts teacher. And he was teaching martial arts. And then I was basically hiring all my friends because at that time, it was like right around the time where everybody started doing yoga teacher trainings. And so I had all these amazing friends that were graduating as yoga teachers. And I was like, okay, I'm going to open this studio on donation. And we're basically just going to have like my friends come and teach yoga. And it was a tiny space. It was, I don't know, maybe 25 people could fit in that room. And basically that was it. And so it was, it was, I needed to, I felt the call that I heard was that you need to provide a space for people to practice yoga that feels welcoming, that had, that is diverse that is not a place where people don't feel comfortable because I had been in situations where I was coming to a yoga studio as a black woman and feeling as though I wasn't welcome there or having people make assumptions that, Oh, this is your first time. It's like, well, Mm. I'm dressed (laughs) in head to toe in, you know, Lululemon or whatever it is. Like, do you really, and I have a Manduka mat. Do you really think this is my first time coming to yoga? No. So, you know, and then part of that ego is like, okay, so now when I roll out my mat and everyone's looking, I have to pop out a handstand just to let you know that, you know, no, (laughs) I didn't want other people to feel like they had to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. And so that was it. So we opened up the studio and because I lived upstairs every once in a while, someone would call in sick. And if it was a weekend and I was around, I would have to go down and teach the class. And I said, oh, well, maybe I should go do a yoga teacher training because I don't want to be like inexperienced. I don't want to take a class from someone who's not certified. So Mm -hmm. let me go do a teacher training. And that was the beginning of the the real shift of 
trying to integrate these two things, two parts of myself. That's when we cross paths for the first time. It is. And I'm just curious, speaking of people with who were lacking in confidence, what was your experience of me as a brand new yoga teacher? Because <laughs> I was not confident back in those days. But I remember you took a couple of classes that I taught. There's probably three or four people in the class. You know, it wasn't very crowded. I think you could only have like two or three. It was only two or three mats in width, the studio. Like, but it was really long. It was like a railroad it, it house. It was long, yeah. It was a long studio. Yeah, so it it's funny because I don't remember how I got referred to you. I think I cold called you. I think I came to the studio, maybe maybe took a class because I'd been been teaching at just wherever I could get pickup gigs. And I was just looking to get as much experience as possible. And I remember meeting you and my impressions of you was that you were very quiet. You're very serious, not in a serious way but just like you you were thorough like yeah. you you were about the business of yeah. you know doing what you were doing and n- there's no nonsense <laughs> that's um, my dad right there <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know you had your business and you were just you know you were just doing your thing and i, I have no idea why you decided to a- allow me to come in there and and basically practice teaching but yeah what was your what, what do you remember from those what i remember days? is that you were sincere what I remember is that I wanted to have a black man teaching yoga. Mm, mm. And because you I, and I were probably the only black people in LA at the time who were in the yoga scene. Yeah. It was and and you know, there's Taj Paxton. She had her mm-hmm. studio um, in Silver Lake. In Silver Lake. But it was also, I remember taking your class and feeling like this class is very athletic. Mm. You know, it's it's a workout. Mm-hmm. People are going to love the class because, and they're going to love him. He's got a great smile, great personality. He needs to be here. That that mm-hmm. was it. It was just that that simple. That's so funny, because if I were to go back and teach yoga today, it would not be athletic. No, I know. I know, I know. I don't remember there being any meditative, real meditative qualities in in the class. But I remember it was like this is a good this is a good workout. Were you doing this as a way to make money or were you doing it purely as a service to the to a community of people who felt uncomfortable or both? Yeah, it was definitely not to make money. <laughs> <laughs> it was really vision didn't come with like a profit plan to make. No, it, no, it did not. It, it actually did not make any money until maybe a few years in. But it was really and, and I was lucky and privileged enough that I you know, I had some disposable income because I didn't have kids mm-hmm. and I was successful in what I was doing at the time. And back then, you know, a space over by King's Road was not very expensive. And I was really inspired by Brian Kest. He mm-hmm. was one of the people that once I started practicing Hatha Yoga, I started going to his studio. And I know that I could not have gone as many times as I was going to his class and other people who I knew were going twice a day sometimes if those classes were not on donation. Mm. And what I saw in his space was a much more diverse group of people than in any other space in LA. 
because people were coming from everywhere because those classes, if you had a dollar, you could pay a dollar. If you had $20, you could pay $20. And there was no judgment or shame about any, any of it. He really believed that the universe was going to take care of him, which is also very much similar to Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And I really believed that as well. And it proved out to be true. The teachers could make money. The studio, I, you know, eventually was able to like sustain itself. And it was, it was good. What would you say was the most challenging aspect of being a yoga studio owner, a donation-based yoga studio owner (laughs) during that time in LA? Well, during that time in LA, what was interesting is that there were other yoga studios that were about seven miles away, Mm -hmm. which in my mind was far enough away. And one night I was in the yoga studio, the, the lights were off and I saw someone who used to be one of my teachers who had a studio that was not, that was seven miles away do a U-turn in the middle of Beverly Boulevard and pull up in front of our studio and take a schedule. And the next thing I knew, I got a call from three different teachers who studied with this person. And one of them was on the schedule and they basically said, hey, I just got a call. I can't teach at your studio anymore. There's gonna be a seven mile radius that if anybody teaches at another studio within seven miles, they won't be able to teach at so-and-so studio. One of the other teachers who was aspiring to teach at that place was told by the studio owner, if you teach there, you're never gonna teach at my studio. And then one person who was teaching there who had a a very big following. And when I say big following, like 25 people in that in divine motion was a big Mm. following. (laughs) Like, you know, everybody's packed in that he wanted her to come and teach. And he wanted to make sure that she took all of her students from divine motion and brought them over to his studio. So what I started to realize was like, Oh, this idea of the yoga sutras (laughs) is not really flowing (laughs) through the what I'm seeing is the business of yoga. That was very interesting. So then what it meant was because this particular studio was teaching a very specific style of yoga that I had to make the decision. I'm not going to be offering that style of yoga because I'm putting my business in jeopardy of losing teachers the moment they have a following, even though my intention is to give teachers, especially new teachers, a place to flourish, a place to grow without being dogmatic. It's like we had teachers that were teaching all different styles of yoga so that there was really something for everybody was the whole idea. That that was really challenging to see how the yoga community at that time was not interested in coming together and supporting one, one another, but many of them were interested in competition. Mm. You know, but then there were other studio owners like Taj Paxton, who we I would go to her studio and I would teach a class or a workshop. And then we would also talk about different ideas and what was going on in our businesses. So it was just really a very interesting time. I remember back when I was teaching yoga, relationships always kind of presented a curveball because 
you could be one way in your relationship, but then you're in the class teaching people these yogic principles. A lot of times they align, a lot of times they didn't align. And I'm just curious what your experiences were in that regard with relationships and how much your yoga practice influenced any sort of growth or, or transition transformations that you, you had. Well, the partner that I opened up the studio with, we were in a romantic relationship. And one of the things that I noticed was, I think I ascribed qualities onto someone that I wished they had, that they didn't actually have. And that perhaps they felt as though they needed to grow into those qualities. But it was a struggle because there wasn't a lot of work that had already been done. So I think that there was a part of being able to see that I had already started incorporating these things as much as I could. And I made an assumption that someone else had already done the same thing. And that just wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. So I learned about making projections onto other people or seeing someone's potential and being in a relationship with the the potential as opposed to the reality. So that relationship obviously ended. It did. It ended. And that was a very painful relationship that ended in betrayal. And, you know, for me, what I thought was betrayal of me was actually me realizing that I had been betraying myself all along. I had been betraying my intuition, my inner knowing, all in a way to be validated by being in relationship. That really was a huge turning point for me in in really stepping into my power. And that's interesting because I found in my life that when you do listen to your intuition multiple times and then you betray it, it can feel even more (laughs) (laughs) gut-wrenching because you knew better. You knew better. You didn't do it. And Yeah. I mean, it's exactly right. It's like going back to this idea of dimming my light. Mm -hmm. That's what the core of the relationship, the core of the relationship was that I needed to dim my light in order for someone else to shine. And in order for the relationship to thrive, it was the only way that that relationship was going to be able to thrive is for me to become invisible. And so that was a betrayal of my knowing And even when the relationship was over and I looked back at my journals, I actually had written in my journal exactly what was going to happen as far as the betrayal was concerned. So it was like part of me knew this is in the field. This is actually going to happen. But unfortunately, because you're hard headed and you don't listen to your own inner knowing, you're just going to have to learn the hard way. And so it usually takes me once or twice and then I learn. <laughs> well, in the meantime, you know, you do have teachers you're studying with uh, Gary Crapsaw and Sally Kempton and Rod Stryker being one of your, I think your primary teacher. What were some of the learnings that you were getting from those teachers that were helping you to sort of navigate those aspects of your life, relationships and otherwise? At that point in time, Rod Stryker was my primary teacher. And the teaching that he brought forward that was really powerful is basically the teachings which he shares in his book around the four desires, really illuminating the negative vasanas, the samskaras, 
and how they interplay and create beliefs and create patterns and create habits and lessons that we have to keep learning and how to unravel those you know that that the book is a is a good system it's a good systematic way in how to unravel those so that was an, a good an amazing teaching and then there are teachings from the himalayan tradition around the cave of the heart and those were the teachings that took me from the space of betrayal to really then going full circle kind of back to sutra 136 and actually having an experience of unconditional light unconditional joy unconditional love that's always present within us that is not conditioned upon anything else it's it's not reliant upon our circumstances or around a partner or another person and so that was probably the most significant turning point for me is this experience of betrayal, understanding how I was complicit in the betrayal myself, of the betrayal of myself, and Mm -hmm. and the pattern that started as a very little girl of dimming my light so that others could shine, because that would make me safe. And as long as I was able to make you shine then I was safe. And so then also looking at like, oh, I even actually chose a career that was basically me behind the scenes, helping people with their scripts, giving actors their first opportunity or making, you know, whatever it is, producing, I'm producing opportunities for other people to shine while I stay behind the scenes and use my creativity, which is something that I have since learned to be able to harness, but to use my creativity so that others could shine. So I got to see all of the little ways in which relationships that I had were also based in that same dynamic. And it's not to say that you don't want other people to shine, but not to your own detriment. I guess what I'm hearing out of that is you want to surround yourself with other people who kind of are good people and and have good energy and I guess who have tapped into something within themselves, which are not oftentimes the popular people, you know, it's not usually the successful people who are doing that. And the story that I'm thinking about with this comment is you produce 30 something films in your career in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. but the last one, the experiment, Mm -hmm. you did something different that you'd never done before. You and Forrest Whitaker and and the other producer decided to experiment literally with the hiring of the crew. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I see us in the office right now having that conversation because I threw it out there and I was like, let's just see what happens. And the decision was really made between the three of us. So anytime that you have a, you're making a movie there's usually a trifecta of the director, the first AD, and maybe the producer. Sometimes the producer gets left off to the side, but that was our trifecta. It was Forrest Whitaker, Tim Bowie, and myself in the office, in the production office. And we were getting all the resumes and headshots and this and that. And we just said, we need to hire people 
based on energy. We don't want any drama on the set. We really want to be around people who have great energy. And we're not going to worry about if someone got an Oscar nomination for sound design. When they come in for the interview, if the vibe feels right, that's what we're going with. And that's how we hired everybody. And there was literally no drama on the set. And at the end, when we had the wrap party, which usually, you know, the guys from the transpo department never show up for the wrap party. <laughs> They're basically like clock in, clock out, we're done. Everybody showed up. And I got so many emails from people saying this was the most amazing set, the most amazing energy, the most amazing family that was created during this time. And it was just beautiful to see how an intention and really sticking with that intention can really shift everything. It was a completely different experience from anything that I had ever done or worked on before. Did you have another sign or, or, or intuitive hit from the universe that it was time to leave the traditional filmmaking behind at that point and, and go all in on the yoga? Yeah, you know, there had been several knocks up against the head <laughs> that had come, which really had a lot to do with integrity. Because anytime you're dealing with lots of money, there's always issues of people and integrity. And essentially, at some point, it had just been like, okay, if I can't be in complete control of what's happening, then I can't work for anyone else. So what I did was I left working for other people and I started my own company. And I basically had some projects that we were trying to get off the ground. And at the time, they were before their time. I've since seen a couple of them actually being made now, like just in 20, like not we're doing this in 2021, but in 2020, there were a couple of these shows that I had pitched a while ago, like almost eight years ago now, that the executives that were hearing these ideas most of the time didn't get them. Some of the times when they did get them, they were super excited. Oh, we're going to make a show about spirituality or about a medical intuit or, you know, whatever it is. And they would take it up the chain, but there were other people who just didn't get it. So I'm happy to see, you know, sometimes the idea drops down, but it's not yours to do. So I feel like that's probably what happened. It wasn't mine to do. And then at some point I was called by a friend who said, Hey, I have someone that I want you to meet and I, they're going to come to your house and I want to bring them over to your house for a private session. I was like a private session. Like I don't do private sessions at my house, but okay. This person is somebody I trust, whatever. It's a friend of theirs. Something must be going on. He comes over, rings the doorbell. I open the door and it's Marianne Williamson. I meet Marianne. I lead her through a yoga session. I'm not quite sure why I'm leading her through yoga and meditation. And she, at the end, says, hey, I have this book coming out and I'm going to do a tour with a couple of retreats and I want you to be the yoga teacher. And so... So she was auditioning you. Essentially, I was being secretly auditioned. Mm-hmm. And so I wound up going to San Diego first with her to do this retreat for this book that she had. 
there were going to be about, I think, 150 to 200 people at this retreat. And at that time, it was definitely the most people that I would have ever been teaching yoga to. I remember thinking to myself, oh, there's like a paddleboard place right over here because we were on the beach. And so I'm going to teach my yoga in the morning. I'm going to go paddleboarding in the afternoon. I'm going to relax in, in later. And then I'm going to come back at night to finish up and teach the yoga. And the day before the, <laughs> the retreat was going to start, she says, oh, I just want you to know that you're not just a yoga teacher. You're a co-facilitator here. Mm. You, you are going to be here from morning until night to co-facilitate along with me and another woman named Grace, who's a psychotherapist, because we never know when someone is going to have their breakthrough. Their breakthrough could happen with you in the bathroom or with Grace at lunch or with me on stage. And we're a cohesive unit. This is not just about every person having their little bubble. You are co- teaching alongside me. And I remember thinking, oh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that. And that was really the moment, that experience of traveling with Marianne and co-facilitating these retreats with her completely shifted my perception and understanding of what it meant to hold space and what it meant to hold transformational space. Mm. And what we would now call, thanks to Mickey Scott Bay Jones' poem, Brave Space. It was a game changer. And that was when I decided what kind of teacher I wanted to be. Talk a little bit about the beginnings of Yoga Nindra and why that specifically out of all of the yoga styles, why you felt connected to to Yoga Nidra. Great question. So I was introduced to Yoga Nidra just before I did yoga teacher training. It was an extremely profound experience where I think for the first time I experienced my own inner vibration. So you didn't, you didn't have to wait to the universe to send you a sign. You could actually create, you could generate that, that same vibration on your own. I feel like that's where Yoga Nidra leads you. You know, it's, it's basically you're, you're following prana back to its source at the deepest level of Yoga Nidra. I did not know that at the time because I was young in my practice, but I knew that I was feeling a vibration, a stillness, a peace, now I know that that was my inner vibration. That was my personal vibration that is similar, if not the same as the universe, right? If I had known better, because there's many things I could have learned from having the experience of my inner vibration, especially in relationship, but I didn't know. So here I am wanting to know more and more and more about Yoga Nidra. And my teacher at the time was, was Rod Stryker. He would always say when he would teach us how to teach, don't ever leave, just leave people in Shavasana. You need to guide them somewhere because now they're ready to surrender. And Shavasana is the corpse pose at the very end of the yoga class where you're just lying there on your back. Right. So, so we were learning techniques of guided relaxation as part of our yoga teacher training without it, nev- without it ever really being named yoga nidra or deep relaxation. So I always thought, oh, okay, this is just how we do shavasana in this tradition. 
And then I discovered the blue book. I started reading that and reading from scripts and using those scripts for my classes and also, you know, continuing to deepen my practice. And the response that I was getting from students almost felt like the yoga nidra practices were more profound than the asana, right? So I had already kind of gathered up enough information and experience to understand that the yoga is leading us to a place where we can be still in meditation. So that was always a very, you know, important part of my yoga classes. But then to bring in the yoga nidra as another place to touch into our inner true self, and then also have meditation, I started shifting my classes to really be like one third asana, one third yoga nidra and one third meditation. What's the etymology of yoga or of nidra? Nidra. So that, so, you know, it's commonly translated as the yoga of sleep, but Mm -hmm. As I also understand it, the word nidra comes from two words, ni and dru, meaning void and to draw forth. So this idea of to draw forth from the void. And if we mm-hmm. think about that void, it's really this place of what could be known as the fourth state of consciousness. So waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and turiya, that fourth state of consciousness that is very similar, if not the same to as samadhi. And so when we think about it, and once I realized this piece, this was also a game changer, is that yoga nidra is actually a full system of yoga. It incorporates all the same limbs of yoga that we usually think about when we think about asana classes. The asana or the sana in this case is the pose of shavasana, a supported posture we're always going to be bringing awareness to our breath and then eventually withdrawing all of our senses to into pratihara. And then of course there's during the relaxation, there's some points of concentration where you're systematically relaxing. And then you start to fall into this space of meditation and beyond that mm-hmm. in yoga nidra. And it's actually more accessible to people in general because it's done in a supine position or a supported position, because most people, and I know you don't teach meditation this way, but a lot of people that are teaching meditation, it feels like the spine needs to be perfectly erect. And there's this like almost rigidity or masculine edge around the posture that doesn't allow you to be effortless. And yoga nidra is all about non-doing and effortlessness. Out of all of the different modalities that are associated with the practice of meditation, why did that resonate with you so much? So much so that you ended up writing the definitive book on <laughs> Yoga Nidra, Radiant Rest, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. Because it's what we need. Rest is the aftertaste of the practice. Mm-hmm. It's not about taking a nap. It's really about being able to touch in to something that is supporting you that you don't even realize in your conscious waking state is there. And so yoga nidra is really about giving your, your body permission to go to sleep, your mind permission to go to sleep, 
while your consciousness stays awake and aware. And my own personal experience has been is that I've received a lot of awakening from this practice, as well as it has deepened my meditation practice. I feel like it's a practice that beyond the yoga studio, beyond the meditation studio, it's the practice that you can actually teach in the basement of a church. You can teach it to the military as Richard Miller has been doing for years now and doing all this research around PTSD and his system called IREST. It's accessible to everyone because it's something that we're all very familiar with is this idea of resting, this idea of sleeping. You mentioned that it could be done on an airplane. Oh, absolutely. I've done it on an airplane. You can be in a reclined position. You can be sidelined if you're pregnant. You can be sitting up against the wall, even with eyes half open. There's so many different ways. Essentially, the two most important things are that you're comfortable and that you feel safe. And so your book, Radiant Rest, which is a a treasure trove of different practices and rituals and mantras to help people drop into that that state, can it be translated easily through reading or do you need to be guided by someone on say recording or someone live with you? Like what would the differences be? That's a great question. So my experience has been that I was first introduced to it being done live with a teacher and then listening to recordings. And then eventually I decided to see what it would be like to try to guide myself through the practice. So all three of those are available. If you're first starting out and you really just are wanting to make the practice available to you as a spiritual practice to be able to rest, I would highly recommend listening to the recordings. So it's one of the reasons why with the book actually come the downloads so that people can, instead of reading it, they can actually get the download and they can do the practice. If you're a teacher or somebody who wants to go deeper into the practice, eventually, I believe that self-guiding is the deepest version of the practice that you'll be able to access. Self-guiding requires this like unique balance of effortlessness and also a little bit of self-effort to be able to guide yourself through, which is that consciousness staying awake and aware And my deepest experiences of the practice or the technique of yoga nidra has been when I've self-guided myself. Beautiful. And the book comes out in March, 2021 on your Uh, birthday week. March 9th. Right. March, but the year 2021, March 9th, 2021, which is your birth birthday week. And I heard (laughs) through the grapevine that you have a birthday ritual that you do every year. I do. (laughs) Can Can you talk about that? Yeah. I think it's really fascinating. <laughs> so my birthday ritual, I write my own eulogy. Mm. And I write the eulogy from the perspective of all of the things that I achieved and all of the things that I left undone, which is inspired by one of the practices in Rod Stryker's book, in his workbook for the Four Desires. And it is a really powerful practice to really get yourself back on track if you've lost track of what you're here to do. It's, you know, really starts to put you more in alignment with Dharma, moves you away from all the things that you've been distracting yourself with. 
and all the beliefs also. That's really interesting. And speaking of that, you know, for those of you who don't know, eulogy is the speech someone would give at your funeral. Obviously, you've had to think about this very Western sort of idea of success, you know, year after year when you're writing that. What is the most important thing to me in my life? How are you thinking about that today? Like, what 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 is your idea of what's the most important thing to do before you transition on? What area of life would that fall into? Well, the most important thing for me is to share the tools that I've been given, the tools that I've been lucky enough to receive from my teachers that I know are powerful, to help people see where they have these limiting beliefs and that limiting beliefs that they can rise above. And also for people to be able to be as rested as possible And I believe that yoga nidra is that tool. So it's one of the reasons why I spend so much time training teachers to teach yoga nidra and to share yoga nidra. And at the same time, I just continue to be a student all the time of everything that I, that's interests me so that I can continue to kind of deepen my own spiritual journey. What does a bad day look like for you, Tracy? Because you seem like you're pretty happy most of the time. <laughs> well, what what brings you down? <laughs> what would well, I mean, storming watch, the Capitol. Uh, yeah, watching <laughs> the news right now will bring me down. Knowing that racism is a problem that may be more pervasive than people had realized, and that it's surprising to people brings me down. But at the same time, I feel like again, sharing these tools, especially the tools of rest and deep relaxation are here to help, especially those people who are on the front lines of fighting to make sure that these things change, right? Uh And the people who are on the receiving end. You know, I recently taught a group of women and this woman from, I believe she was from Alabama, actually, She's like a 70-something-year-old woman. And she said to me, this is the first time in my life I ever gave myself permission to rest. And hearing that from a 70-year-old Black woman who is around the same age as my mom, that was just like, okay, I am doing my dharma. That's wonderful. And final question for you here. If you could go back to your 18, 19-year-old self and give yourself any life wisdom What would you say to teenage Tracy? Teenage Tracy would need to hear that she is powerful and that she's not defined by anybody else's limited idea of who she is or what she's capable of or who she should be. Beautiful. I uh, I want to offer a reflection of my own. And, you know, normally when I ask people what their favorite toy or activity is, there will be some sort of theme that emerges, you know, through their life. And you threw me a curveball with the encyclopedias. I never had that one before. But I'll tell you what's coming through me. So I'm just going to say what's coming through me. I'm not going to edit it too much. When I think about encyclopedia and the curiosity that that drives one to devour the encyclopedia from A to Z is you're looking at all of the different expressions of life. And 
underneath that though, you're really looking at who am I in relationship to this thing or to this phenomenon or to this force or to this, whatever you're looking at. And so it's really the beginnings of a path of self-realization, you know, because the ultimate discovery is that underneath all of those things, we're all connected. We're all one. And who I am is a lot bigger than I ever, I ever thought I was. So it's not surprising that your life ended up taking the path that it took from starting off in this very curious, observant child who was full of wonder and curiosity. And so I just want to acknowledge you for, for staying the course in that and for showing up in the way that you've, you've shown up in my life, giving me one of my first teaching opportunities mm-hmm. in the yoga, which is what really started my own conscious path and what I'm doing right now. So we could even make the argument that if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. <laughs> there would be no podcast, there'd be no meditation and you know, none of that stuff. So I'm just grateful that we cross paths and, and I'm grateful that you accepted this invitation to come onto the podcast. I didn't really know a lot about your backstory, but the more I researched, the more other interviews I heard, I was just so impressed with you. And I really hope everybody gets an opportunity to get their hands on Radiant Rest and follows you on social media. Obviously, we'll link everything in the show notes and hopefully we'll get a chance to cross paths again in person at some point when when all this pandemic stuff has been sorted out. Thank you so much. I, uh, I really am grateful for you and you'll read a little acknowledgement to you in the back of my book when it comes out. <laughs> So thank you so much, Light. Really, really appreciate being here with you. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Tracy Stanley. You definitely want to pick up a copy of Radiant Rest, which is available everywhere books are sold. You also want to follow her on social media at Tracy underscore Stanley. She spells Tracy T-R-A-C-E-E underscore S-T-A-N-L-E-Y. Check out the Radiant Rest podcast on all of the podcast platforms. And we'll, of course, put the links in the show notes, which you can get at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. If you're inspired by hearing Tracy's story and you have not left a rating yet, that is the best way that you can support this podcast. As of now, it only takes you 10 seconds. I'll walk you through it really quickly. Look down at your phone screen. Click where it says at the end of the tunnel, which is in purple. If you're not listening to this podcast on the Apple Podcast app, look for a button that says listen on Apple Podcast. And once you get there, click the purple link and then scroll down past the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews and just tap on the star in the far right and you've left a rating. It's literally that easy. And I thank you in advance for taking those 10 seconds to do that. Also, my next book, which is called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration is coming out in May, and it's now available for pre-order everywhere books are sold. It's based on those daily inspirational emails that I've been sending out since 2016. So if you like those and if you like these podcast conversations, it's all about inspiration. You're going to love that book and you'll want to check it out as well. So please pre-order that when you can. You can go to lightwatkins.com and you'll find all of the links to do that. Otherwise, thanks again for listening and for sharing this conversation with your friends and your followers. And I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, 
Keep trusting your intuition. Keep following your heart. Keep taking those leaps of faith. And I'm sending you lots of peace and love. Have a blessed day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.